We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. What we've got here is failure to communicate. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. Whatever appears emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Sorted Cinema Podcast. I am your host, Patrick Murphy. Uh, this week we are going to be reviewing In the Mouth of Madness, John Carpenter's 1994 film uh, that is written by Michael DeLuca and stars Sam Neill. Here's a brief clip of In the Mouth of Madness. because the stores could not meet the demand of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. You're the guy that writes horror books. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. See this? It's a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. That was a clip from John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. Uh, again, it was also written by Michael DeLuca. I am your host, Patrick Murphy. Joining me, as usual, is Ricky D. Hello, Patrick. And also joining us for the first time is Christopher Cross. Hello. All right, so before we talk about uh, In the Mouth of Madness, I'm going to give a brief plot summary here. It's basically about uh, he's a freelance uh, insurance claims investigator who is sent to find the manuscript and possibly a missing writer, a highly popular horror writer, along the lines of a Stephen King type, uh, and in the process discovers that some really weird things are happening to the people who read this writer's books, and the entire world may be going insane, and things just aren't as they seem, period. Uh, that's about as much plot description as I want to give this. This is kind of like... a <laughs> there's a lot going on in this movie but be before we unpack it all um rick i want to ask you why did you choose in the mouth of madness well this week marks the 25th anniversary of john carpenter's in the mouth of madness so what better time to look back at carpenter's most underrated sadly misunderstood and criminally overlooked gems in his filmography this is a movie that i really love i do realize it has its flaws but when I first watched this movie, I was young, 
you know, the movie came out 25 years ago. And I remember watching it for the first time and just being blown away. Like, I, I, it was it was one of those movies that sort of, like, changed me as a movie buff. Like, I had seen weird movies, and I'm going to talk about movies that are similar to In the Mouth of Badness throughout the podcast. But I remember when the movie ended, especially with that last scene, I was blown away. You know, like, when you're young and you watch a movie, like a Tarantino film, and you start to take notice of things that you wouldn't not have normally taken notice of prior, like maybe the director's name, like who made the movie or a camera shot or a camera angle or cinematography. And then the next thing you know, you have like movie posters on your wall, like Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. This is one of those movies. And so 25 years later, I rewatched it twice this week. I've seen it plenty of times. I own the DVD and man, I still love this movie. Like, I, I feel like, and we're going to talk about this towards the end of the show, but I, I do think it stands the test of time, and it's a really fun rewatch. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not, I'm going to get this out of the way right now, I'm not as big a fan of this movie as, uh, as you are. I've seen it a few times. I watched it uh, just the other night just to, to sort of get uh, refreshed on it. I don't dislike this movie. I think there's a lot of good stuff in there, and it holds your interest for sure. I do have my problems with it, but... I, I, I do think that there. this is one of the more interesting movies that John Carpenter made, and he was really swinging for the fences, I feel like, on this one, maybe more so than a lot of his other movies. Um, and we'll get into like some of, the, some of the stuff that's really, really great about this, and you know, I'll probably touch on a few things that I think are a little off-kilter. Uh, this whole movie's off-kilter, really, so maybe it kind of fits. But before, before that, uh, let's get our guest's impressions. Christopher Cross, what, what is your history with this movie? Uh, so when I first watched this film, I was, uh, I, I enjoyed, you know, the thing, uh, I really enjoyed and, uh, Halloween, like those were the ones from John Carpenter that I had seen before. And then I watched this one. I had like skipped the fog and other movies like that. Uh, and I was not like the biggest fan of this when I first, like when I first saw it, however, every single image in this movie, uh, stuck with me. Uh, for a long time, and so I would keep thinking about it, and eventually I would rewatch it, and I'd rewatch it again, watch it with people, and uh, yeah, for me, like in terms of John Carpenter movies, this is like the only one I can think of that's like a uh, straight like character uh, going in, like a character just going crazy, uh, and watching that de-evolution. Um, and sort of bending reality and all that. He does that in some other movies. Well, this is the final film in his Apocalypse trilogy. So he does a lot with, like, you know, end-of-the-world stuff. Um, Which we should say the Apocalypse trilogy was The Thing, Prince of Darkness, and In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, and I even rewatched Prince of Darkness before this because I was, like, forgetting that that was part of it, being like, oh, th- you know, I think that's probably pretty similar. And I'm watching it, I'm like, yes, yes it is. But, yeah, for this movie, I, I will say I think as a character study, it's uh, riveting, um, but it also is just one of those movies where, I like, there are so many images that just are forever in my head uh, of like monsters and special effects that are just crazy. Uh, it's uh, perhaps one of the most interesting, probably because it is so Lovecraft uh, in its tone. Um, I, I do think it's my favorite Lovecraft like movie that I have seen. Um, so, yeah. And I think both you've made two points there that I think are going to come up a couple of times. I know that they're the ones that stuck with me the most. 
first of all, this is a very Lovecraftian movie. And so if you're not really into the Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft kind of vibe, uh, and of course, this movie kind of takes some inspiration, you know, in its title from uh, At the Mountains of Madness, I believe is what his book was called. Um, I, I'm not a big Lovecraft guy. I've never it's never connected with me in any way. And all the sort of Lovecraftian horror that, that people love that I've tried to to experience just has never sunk in. So that's probably partially one of the reasons why this movie is never connected with me that that deeply. However, what you said about the images in this movie this is probably the most gorgeous movie that John Carpenter's ever done. You're right. Every frame practically is worth looking at and inspecting. And the images really, really do stick with you. And that to me is what, what makes this movie ultimately very, very watchable. Even if you, you can't get into the plot and sort of the horror, the psychological horror aspects of it, it is a gorgeous movie full of jarring imagery. And you, like you said, great special effects. So you know you guys mentioned H.P. Lovecraft. I just wrote an article I just wrote an article about In the Mouth of Madness, which you should find over at Goombastomp.com by the time this podcast gets released. The article is about 3,000 words, and I mentioned H.P. Lovecraft, I think, maybe twice in passing. And, and the reason why I mentioned this is because when I watched the movie for the first time as a young kid, like a young teen, whatever, I, I didn't know who H.P. Lovecraft was. You know what I mean? I never read any of his work. Uh, I heard a name here and there, but I never really, like understood his influence on the horror genre but i was a huge horror movie buff and when i watched this movie i could not help but think of many movies that were similar to this thematically that were released in the 80s and 90s and it's interesting because a lot of people say that the movie is quite unlike anything that they've ever seen in the 90s and i'm like did you watch movies in the 90s it bears a resemblance to films like lost highway a Nightmare on Elm Street, Hellraiser, Videodrome, The Dark Half, Stephen King's The Dark Half. So like in Wes Craven's Nightmare, Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, uh, the dream world provided the doorway into Freddy's world. In Hellraiser, it was a puzzle box guarded by Pinhead. In David Cronenberg's masterpiece Videodrome, the viewers, the people in that movie, are unable to distinguish the difference between reality and fantasy as they slip into sort of like a hallucinogenic state of mind when watching the Videodrome signal. In George A. Romero's adaptation of Stephen King's The Dark Half, the movie is about an author who writes these violent novels that soon come to life and haunt him. So you see there's a lot of similarities there. So at the time, I was watching a lot of these movies. And A Nightmare on Elm Street, for anyone who knows me, is one of my 10 favorite movies of all time it's the movie that made me a horror movie buff it's a movie it's a movie that made me a movie buff like i had always been watching movies ever since i was like i don't know like three years old but when i watched that movie for the first time it's when i started to take notice of a director i was like who made this movie it's wes craven and watching the movie again i realized that the actual structure of the film borrows heavily from don siegel's 1956 classic invasion of the body snatchers so if you rewatch Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it actually begins with the protagonist who's quote-unquote crazy, locked up in an, insane, in, an, in an insane asylum, and he claims that he's not insane, but because he's screaming that he's not insane, he of course looks crazy, and then he sits down and he starts to tell a story, and the rest of the movie unfolds like an extensive flashback, seeking to explain his current situation. And so there's so many similarities to all of these movies that came out prior to In the Mouth of Madness, that clearly John Carpenter is a fan of H.P. Lovecraft, 
And Michael DeLuca seems to be a fan of H.P. Lovecraft. But cinematically, because I'm always about the visuals and the way that the director tells a story through his visuals, I feel like he was inspired or influenced, and I could be wrong, but by many filmmakers and movies that came prior. Yeah, I've heard the the Body Snatchers comparison before, and I agree completely, because it's uh, that is one of the things that when you first watch, when I first watched this movie, I did not piece together. I so I thought, are there spoilers? Okay, on on here. Absolutely, yeah. spoil everything. Okay. Yep. All right. Uh, I thought that he was uh, insane, and like he was insane. But the movie reveals it's that not so much that he's insane, but that everything else in the world is insane. He's just in the know, essentially. Um, and and that frames that entire beginning part of that movie in a much much different light. Uh, much in the way that Body Snatchers does as well. So yeah, no, I, I, this re, like my recent rewatch, I was like, oh yeah, that is like some clever stuff. However, Lovecraft also, uh, in a lot of his novels, he would have a narrator who would already be at the end of the journey, telling you what happened during the journey at the Mountains of Madness. For sure. For sure. I actually wrote that in my article because I'm, I'm aware that the same sort of like structure takes place in his work. Um, and I, and I, I know that all of these movies are heavily inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. But I just I, I mean, it was like a film professor who first uh, pinpointed the um, similarities between this and Invasion of Body Snatchers. And I heard that like years ago and rewatching a movie like this week. I was like, holy shit, it's, it, 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 he's right. But the other thing about the film, though is like i mean say what you want about the rest of the cast and we'll talk about them later but sam neill is truly excellent as the jaded chain smoking insurance investigator who's pretty much like a film noir protagonist like he's a hard-boiled detective yes he's an insurance investigator but his character is written like a hard-boiled detective from like those noirs from like the 40s and 50s i mean for example there's a scene where he meets linda for the first time and they're standing by the elevators by the way, fake elevators. I don't know why they decided to create these fake. I mean, you have like a limited budget and you decide to waste your money creating fake elevators. Like we, the audience, don't care if they're standing next to fake elevators and or doorway. But anyways, I digress. Um, but yeah, he's standing there talking to Linda and he just starts like flirting with her. And it's like a scene from a classic film noir movie or when he, um he goes to the office of, and I forget the name of the actor, but he's the guy that's in every single John Carpenter film. And he sort of realizes that he pulls, he pulled off this scam to try to like steal money, et cetera, et cetera. That's like a scene from like Double Indemnity or something. It, it's like the way the, the scene is constructed, shot, framed, and of, of course the dialogue, it feels like a film noir. And what's interesting about his character is that, and this is why I think it's a really good screenplay, because I like... The fact that Michael DeLuca wrote him as this sort of like detective. And the thing about him is because he is an insurance investigator, I would say that his biggest talent, um, I don't know if talent's the right word, his biggest strength is his intelligence to see past fabrication and phoniness. But at the same time, that becomes his greatest weakness because his bizarre journey pits him against his own logic, keeping him blind to the truth that's really right in front of his eyes until it's too late. So in the end, Trent, John Trent, the character played by Sam Neill, he does escape his cell and he wanders off into the into like the deserted streets. And that scene also is very reminiscent of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but more so the ending of Night of the Living Dead. But the 
point is, I just love the fact that Michael DeLuca wrote his character has this detective who's like a skeptic. And you can talk about the conflict between his character and Sutter Kane, but I think the biggest conflict in this movie is his own personal struggle, like his internal struggle, because he is a skeptic and he doesn't even read books or watch movies, but yet he's put into this like weird mystery where he has to go look for this missing novelist and there's all this shit happening around them and it's 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 foreshadowing the end of the world, the end of times. And I just I just love the way his character is written. Do you really like working on Kane stuff? You really like busting people? Yeah. I bust frauds, I bust phonies, and yeah, I love it. Have you ever busted anyone you know? Yeah, sure I did. Didn't make any difference. You see. In my business, you soon find out that anybody's capable of anything. If you can think of it, they've done it. Doesn't leave you much to believe in. Yeah, but think of the upside. At least it doesn't leave you too much to be disappointed in either. Believe me, the sooner we're off the planet, the better. Now you sound like Kane. No, not me. You're the Kane lover. I just like being scared. Kane's work scares me. What's to be scared about? It's not like it's real or anything. Well, it's not real from your point of view, and right now reality shares your point of view. What, what scares me about Kane's work is what might happen if reality shared his point of view. Whoa, 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 we're not talking about reality here. We're talking about fiction. It's different, you know? A reality is just what we tell each other it is. Sane and insane could easily switch places if the insane were to become the majority. You would find yourself locked in a padded cell, wondering what happened to the world. No, and it wouldn't happen to me. Well, it would if you realized everything you ever knew was gone. I'd be pretty lonely being the last one left. Well, there's also a little bit of weirdness as how much of this movie is reality to begin with. The movie kind of is, it starts out sort of hyper-realistic. I mean, when you first enter that insane asylum, the uh, the doctor who's played by, I can't remember that the, the name of the actor's John, name. John Glover. John Glover, John yeah. Glover right. Uh, everything seems a little bit off. He seems off. He's their first hint that this world actually isn't a realistic world, I think. I feel like the entire movie is almost a Stephen King book within a Stephen King book. That nothing in this movie is real. There was never any reality. And that opening is what makes me think that. And the way that Carpenter shoots it with the, the massive hallway of that, that asylum... Uh, just kind of the odd angles that he finds and the, the sort of weird ticks that everybody seems to have, especially John Glover. <laughs> it's just kind of a creepy little weirdo right away at the beginning of the movie, and it just doesn't feel right. Nothing feels right. And it slips pretty soon into you know hallucinations and things like that. But there's also a little bit of, for me, the, one thing that, that I thought watching it again the other night, rem, uh, it felt reminiscent of a more uh, pulpy version of Harrison Ford's character in Blade Runner as to who is this person? Is he actually real? Is this person human being? And I always felt like Sam Neill's character in that he never was a human being. He is simply a character in a novel uh, that he never really had. They never, they never go to any length setting up, not to any great length, setting up who he really is. They give him an archetype kind of thing, like you said, that noir detective. But is he a real person, or was he just what Sutter Kane says he is, is a tool? He's a character in the book who serves a, a function, 
And it seems to me that that the end, especially, is him coming to grips with the fact that he never was anybody. He's just this thing that this invention and he has served his purpose. And now that's that's kind of it. And he's sitting there watching the movie of himself and laughing and crying at the same time because he he isn't who he thought he was. His, you know, he seeing the truth was always his thing. Seeing reality. Well, he, he couldn't even see that he wasn't reality. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Because I wrote that in my article, and I don't know how many times I've argued with someone about what the movie is about, but that's exactly what I wrote. I wrote, for example, at the end of the movie, he walks out of the insane asylum. He's walking through the streets. He comes across the movie theater with the the marquee that says, In the Mouth of Madness. And there's actually a movie poster, and it says it's directed by John Carpenter, which is fantastic. He walks mm-hmm. in the movie theater. He sits down. He starts watching the movie, and he starts laughing hysterically. And that is the thing. The film is not about fiction crossing over into reality. Instead, it's about someone realizing that their reality is fiction. So if the film mm-hmm. is the film within the film, then it's also an adaptation of the book. Therefore, everyone who read the book and or seen the film within the film was driven mad by the fundamental knowledge that once the story is over, they cease to exist. Now, that might seem complex and complicated, but it's not. It's all there on the screen. That is why I think this movie is severely underrated because it's only 90 minutes long and somehow he takes these big themes and this crazy wild over-the-top movie and he somehow gets it done in 90 minutes if this movie was made today in 2020 it would be a 10 episode netflix series instead of them trying to locate a missing author of these popular horror novels they would probably be looking for like a blogger or worse like a youtuber it would probably star chris pratt the young kid hayden christensen's (laughs) character would probably be replaced by one of the kids from stranger things like you know what i mean like that is why i love this movie like today they could not make this movie not in 90 minutes it would be a three-hour Blade Runner 2049 or Inception type movie where they try to, you know, over-explain things and they just and they drag out all the kind of the layers of effects and, and really hammer it home. I think the the thing the great thing about this uh, the the script, which I'm not a, as big of a fan of the script. I like the structuring of the script, but the actual dialogue is, I think, where I kind of have my my problems with it. I think it could have been a little sharper, but the structure is really good and. Man, it just, you don't really know what's happening, I feel like, until it's hinted at. But that final scene nails it home, and it is a great final scene. When he sits down with that bucket of popcorn, and you're like, what the hell is going on here? And he watches himself, and that's, I think, where it really clicks. The movie waits until that moment to to let you know what's going on so that it can keep you sort of confused and, and, and off-kilter. Um, and it's just a, it's a great ending. Just, just an absolutely fantastic ending. I don't want to spoil things, but I can tell you right now that Michael DeLuca is not my MVP. And the reason why is because there are two crucial scenes in the movie that were actually rewritten. So one of them we'll talk about later. But the ending, the original ending of the movie, according to the screenplay, which I actually read, you can find it online, it does not end like this. This was a decision made on the part of John Carpenter and his cast and crew, and they completely rewrote it. And I could not imagine this movie being great or good or me even perhaps liking the movie if they went with the original ending. Because the original ending doesn't even follow the character uh, Trent. He, like, basically, the, the, the psychiatrist or doctor or whatever, I don't know what he is exactly, but he goes to visit him in the insane asylum, and it follows him back home. 
And when he gets back home, he realizes that his wife is sort of going crazy and she has the blue eyes. And it ends with her delivering this like sort of like one liner that opens up the possibility of them maybe making a sequel. It's a terrible ending. I'm so <laughs> glad they rewrote it. The David Warner character you're talking about? Okay. Um, <laughs> it, it, I'm very glad because honestly, that ending is what makes you think about the entire rest of the movie. If you do not have that, you're not really remembering all the little clues along the way, all the times they argued about reality, all the times they say the words fiction and nonfiction, the, the, they obviously are saying these things because they mean something. They're repeating words a lot throughout the script, and they have the same conversation, essentially, as, as things get progressively worse. So without that ending, I don't see how any of that would mean hardly anything. So thank God they, they did that, because it really does nail it home and makes the movie stick out in, in your mind uh, afterwards. One of my favorite things in movies is the the power of the uh, the power of just the written word uh, and how it influences people to behave differently. Um, I think like uh, I think the gift, old boy, uh, and, and things like that, where it's just the suggestion of thought and and it affects everything. And this movie has that with the uh, Sutter Kane character and. Almost a continuation of They Live and the capitalist themes because uh, ultimately Sutter Kane is he sells more than Stephen King. He sells more. He's like the biggest figure right now uh, in publishing and people actually like eat up his books. And because he has all this power, he's also able to say things and affect how people behave really by writing whatever is written. And of course, you know, he's being influenced to write what he's uh, writing, but yeah, there, there is, I found that to be one of the more powerful things from a rewatch uh, was the idea that because he has all this power, he has the ability to do anything he wants. Uh, and so he is able to write uh, 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 this, the, the end, <laughs> the end of the world for a character, um, and make it seem like it is just reality for him. Um, and yeah, that's, that's kind of one of the only other things I have to add. Cause you guys, you guys pretty much covered everything. I never even thought about the Blade Runner thing, but, uh, <laughs> that is, uh, this is my favorite thing to take out of this now. <laughs> <laughs> I think good horror films hold up a mirror to our society and, the thing about this movie is like I was uh, reading an interview with Michael DeLuca and he was talking about how, yes, the movie is heavily inspired by the work of H.B. Lovecraft. But according to Michael DeLuca, he says the very plot outline of the movie, minus maybe, say, like the cosmic horror elements, was greatly inspired by uh, L. Ron Hubbard and his mm. claim to fame because Hubbard was a pulp fiction novelist in the 1950s. And, of course, he later founded the Church of Scientology a religious movement based on his own fictional writing. And he has like a massive long list of followers like Tom Cruise and so on and so forth. So it's, it's interesting because I, I don't really think that that is the main theme of the movie. Like it's clearly there on screen and on page of his screenplay. And it really is one of those movies that examines our, when I say our like mainstream, like society, like our often unhealthy and obsessive relationship with pop culture 
which I think is more relevant today than it was way back in the 90s. I mean, like, when I think of, like, the 80s and 90s, I think of someone like Michael Jackson, who had such an impact on his fans. I mean, even to this day, like, the guy is dead, and they're just, like, crazy about him. I mean, have you ever seen footage of Michael Jackson early days, like, at his concerts, and you would have, like, 30, 40 people just passing out? You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) But nowadays, especially with social media and the internet and the fact that you can actually talk to your favorite basketball player or actor or whatever, I feel like it's more relevant today. But I've always thought that that wasn't the major theme of the movie, though. It's there, but... Well, what do you guys think of the Sutter Kane character? Because he, he only shows up near the end, and he's it very... It's very brief. There's a part of me that wanted more conversation with Sutter Kane because I find him kind of fascinating and uh, his, his outlook on things. More conversation between him and Trent. But is he is Sutter Kane really the point of this movie? That, like I I am kind of with Rick that I think that Trent, obviously, his descent into figuring out who he is and the madness of figuring out that he isn't real uh, is kind of that's you know, that is the main theme. That's how the movie ends on it. Uh, otherwise, it would probably end with Sutter Kane. But what did you think of his? of his presence in this movie. I thought you were going to say his turtleneck. <laughs> it's a good turtleneck. I just found it bizarre that he's like the baddie, the main villain, the, the antagonist of the film. And he's wearing a turtleneck. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't get enough screen time. He doesn't get enough. No, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think he's because for me, he, he, he's, he is a surrogate. Ultimately, he is not the one who is actually, uh, influencing all these things, and that's uh, it, it is like the great old ones, the gods, like that. Those are the ones that are uh, just putting the pen to the paper for him. He, he's he's writing, but they're they're giving the words, uh, like they're giving him the power. And so ultimately, as a surrogate, he's just sort of like he looks nice, you know. He's a great face for evil, but like he's. <laughs> He's, you know, he's just a guy. It's, it's the, the, you know, it's the Iron Man three, you know, uh, stuff with the Mandarin. Like it's that. It, so ultimately, I, you know, I think he gets enough time. It's, it's enough time that like, you, 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 you're like that guy is a horror writer. Um, that's about all you really need. Um, and people like him. He's like a yeah. hybrid of H.P. Lovecraft and Stephen King. hundred percent. H.P. Lovecraft in, in the sense of like the material he writes, uh, you know, the creatures that are incorporated in his work, et cetera, et cetera. Stephen King because of, of his popularity and the fact that Stephen King does have this rabid fan base, like a loyal cult like following. Like it's kind of scary. Some of his like hardcore fans. But I will say this, that scene, the final scene when John Trent and Sutter Kane exchange their final words, I mm. think that is the scene that best embodies the spirit of the film. It's one of the best scenes in the movie, not the best scene, but I love that scene when the realities presented in the film are torn apart. It's fantastic. Talk about it more later in the show. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, I think like Carpenter finds great ways in order to show how the reality is bending in this world uh because you know he did throughout his career he has mostly worked with with lower budget stuff um give or take obviously some have been bumped up a little bit more than others but um he's a guy that's had to be able to get creative in order to find ways to get his his ideas across and there's some big ideas in this you talked about the you know the ancient gods and they're behind this wall that's kind of like bulging and like they're trying to trying to break free 
Um, and Sutter Kane is, you know, as he references, he's holding them back uh, for, for now. Uh, but all the little things in that conversation, you know, when all of a sudden there's a hallway behind Trent and, you know, the room has rooms change in this movie. The world changes right around them. Uh, flashbacks just pour imagery into your brain uh, or just not completely random things because these images either sh have shown up before or will show up later. But uh, all the little sort of monstrosities that are hiding in every little corner of this. Carpenter has always been really good at that. And in, in something like The Thing, they were more out there and in the open. They're more exposed uh, for, for you to see. But here he does a really good job of su suggestion, but also showing you brief glimpses of just super creepy imagery, which is another thing that makes this movie work, uh, you know, as a whole. For sure. Yeah. And I guess we should quickly talk about the special effects because I think, I think the special effects have aged well. And I think it's because, oh, yeah. again, like Tremors, which we talked about last week, it's a mix of practical work, animatronics, miniatures, and some good old-fashioned dudes wearing rubber suits. Like, seriously, it's fantastic. And there's so many... Like, I mean, Chris, you mentioned the images that stand out. There's so many great moments in this movie, like... You, Patrick, you mentioned the scene in which John Trent is frantically running away from a large group of demons, which was actually brought to life by 32 puppeteers. It was like this wall of monsters. You can look at the, you can actually view the uh, making of on YouTube. It's fantastic how they, how they, how they conceived this idea to create these like demons that chase them down the hallway. Um, I love everything. It's not, it's not even just the monsters, but it's like the creepy children. The oh, yeah. <laughs> zombie-like homeless people, the police officer. I mean, just about every character in this movie stands out. It's like such. It's one of those movies that that really lives and dies on its atmosphere. And because he does such a great job with the brooding atmosphere, like the movie just works. Because there's there's no scene like. And I'm sorry to go back to Tremors, but last week. Uh, we 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 spoke about that that one and one one and only scene in Tremors, which sort of like felt out of place in the movie, and I don't think that there's any scene in in this movie that feels out of place. Now there's things that we can talk about that we might want to change or that we weren't really fond of. We'll talk about that later, but overall, it just it just works. Everything about this movie works, and gotta mention uh, Julie Carmen who plays Linda, which we haven't really talked much about. I love the scene when she exits the car and her head starts spinning around yeah. like Linda Blair's Regan in The Exorcist. <laughs> and that was amazing because they actually had a stunt double who was wearing an upside-down prosthetic mask of Carmen's face. And again, it's it's like they achieve these amazing effects without CGI. There is CGI in the movie, but most of it is practical. And it was done by Robert Kurtzman, Greg Nicotero, and Howard Berger... And anyone who watches The Walking Dead or watches a lot of horror films knows who these dudes are. My name is Dr. Wren, and I'm going to try and get you out of here. <laughs> After all my redecorating. No, I, I, I think I'll stay. There's a guard with a pair of swollen testicles who swears you wanted out of here. Oh, yeah. Um, I changed my mind. I see. The crosses are a nice touch. They'd almost have to keep you in here once I'd seen these, wouldn't they, John? Got a smoke? 
uh, honestly, with Carpenter, I mean, that's been the strength of his entire career is that all of his movies still like the special effects have aged well. And it's because it's mostly practical. Like he doesn't uh, he I, I feel like he he I don't I don't remember in Ghosts of Mars if there's any CG. I feel like there is. But it's, uh, you know, he's definitely someone who shied away from it uh, for the longest time with anything. Um and on top of that, within the Mouth of Madness, I agree, Patrick, uh, with you bringing up the power of suggestion in this, um, because I think that is it is the fact that he they made all these monsters. They do show up. You do see uh, some of these monsters, but they don't show up that often. It's at, like a lot more of it is you've seen what it is, uh, but it is more terrifying to know that they are there than to actually see them. Um, and I mean, that's. That's Lovecraft as well, but also I think for Carpenter to do that, that is very, very. Um, it reminds me of the thing in in the vein of like you don't know who is the thing, um, and in this case, you don't, you just don't know what is lurking in the shadows, um, and I, I think that's why this movie holds up in a different way um, than his other ones because it is not dependent on. I think it's creepy imagery is generally not the puppets it's not the it's not the the those specific practical effects of like monsters it's it's walls it's uh you know shots of churches it's things like that that you're just like wow what's going on here you know doors flying open these are things that carpenter movies don't usually hang their hat on but in this i think it hangs its hat on and really well yeah, I mean, nobody shoots a hallway like John Carpenter. Um, <laughs> he's, the, he's the best at that. And I think, yeah, what he did really well is he has those things in here. It's the way he shoots them in this movie. It's the compositions that he finds. Uh, because, you know, you can have great a great practical effect, but you still have to shoot it in the right way that burns its way into somebody's brain. And I feel like this movie, maybe even more, the thing to me is the ultimate John Carpenter movie. It is one of my favorite horror movies of all time. I, I've could endlessly dissect that movie i love every bit of it but the monsters in this for as inventive and creative as the monsters were in that and the, the creatures and the, the effects uh they are more frightening in in this movie because he's not putting it all out there for you to see you get a flash of it it's a brief glimpse and you're right the the power of your imagination takes over much of it fills in the blanks in this movie a lot more and the way he finds these just bizarre compositions that stick out to you i mean i the the naked old man handcuffed to the innkeeper's leg like Uh, that kind of stuff is just creepy (laughs) it's the best (laughs) and he doesn't really he doesn't put an emphasis on these things he's never uh he's never being obvious with any of these shots he's never telegraphing things and John Carpenter sometimes in the past has had a tendency to telegraph a few things because he he likes to show off some of this stuff. Uh, This movie, he shows an incredible amount of restraint when it comes to the monsters and the practical effects. Um, So, And as a result, those images really, really, really stick. Uh, Maybe more so than his other movies. Some of his other movies, I think, I feel are better. Some of them. Um, but, uh, But the imagery in this one really sticks with me a lot. I think it's clear when watching a movie that John Carpenter and his crew, a cinematographer, a special effects crew, I 
think they were clearly thinking outside of the box, but I think it's also because of the limitation of the budget. But I've said this plenty of times on the podcast, like a lot of times when you're an independent filmmaker, or in this case, he's not even an independent filmmaker, but he's still limited in terms of like resources and money, et cetera, et cetera. You're forced to think outside the box and you get more creative and you find these amazing ways to pull off scenes like you said, like the the the, uh, the naked husband, uh, Mrs. Pickman's naked husband, mm-hmm. who, by the way, is played by Francis Bay. Uh, mm-hmm. Naked, handcuffed to the front desk. Like, I love that scene. But also, like, you think of... Um, a scene like the nighttime drive along the country road that's haunted by this lone cyclist, again, played by a young Hayden Christensen, his best performance ever. Um, <laughs> scenes like that. And there's a lot of repetition in the movie, which like a lot of scenes repeat two or three, four, sometimes four times. And I think that really hammers in the the idea that it really is a work of fiction. Like this world doesn't really exist. And, Outside of the town, outside of the story, there's nothing to be found, which is why there's a lot of repetition. I almost took it as rewrites, the repetition stuff. Like, it was changing on the fly. There's actually a mention that Linda is written out of the story Mm -hmm. at one Mm -hmm. point towards the end of the movie. So, for sure, I totally agree. Yeah, I think we're on the same page in terms of, like, what the movie's about. But, yeah, John Carpenter, his direction is fantastic. Like, he manages to create a thick, unsettling atmosphere of anxiety, confusion, unease, despite... The questionable performances from the entire supporting cast, okay? <laughs> Yet, he somehow manages to pull it off. Aesthetically, I, I agree. I think it's one of Carpenter's best-looking movies. And you have to thank Gary B. Kibbe, I believe is how you pronounce his name, uh, for his gorgeous cinematography. Now, Chris, you watched the – well, you watched, you listened to the director's commentary, as did I, earlier this week. And I found it interesting because the entire run of the director's commentary, which is as long as the movie, John Carpenter has no idea how they made the movie. Like, he's always asking his cinematographer, like, wait, so how do we pull off this shot? So what lights did we use? So how do we do the special effects? And he's the one that's actually answering the questions. Like, he starts talking about how they used a 22 millimeter wide angle lens, which I love. Um, and he starts talking about how they just pulled off a lot of the special effects and the lighting and the scene with the church and why a lot of people to this day still believe it's a Maté painting or something. Like, it's yeah. just so bizarre listening to the commentary because I'm like, was John Carpenter on set or not? <laughs> There's a part of me that feels like it was it was it was definitely a cinematographer's commentary, um, but it was like uh, I, I feel like he was also just throwing. Um, yeah, throwing the audience a bone because he would say things like, "Oh yeah, we use 10k," and I, and I'm over here like, ten thousand dollars? Like, what do you mean 10k?" And then they'd have to explain what 10k is, and I was like, "Oh, okay." Uh, I feel like he might he might have known, but he was just throwing a bone. It's funny because there's so do we we both watched the Screen Factory release right with the other commentary no yes. i actually have oh, the <laughs> uh the dvd that was released i don't know like way back in the early 2000s i guess it's an old okay. old dvd yeah so the screen factory blu-ray has another commentary with john carpenter and sandy king carpenter who is producer on this movie um and uh they are it is basically john going I don't remember how we did any of this stuff, the whole commentary and Sandy King being like, oh, come on. Remember we did this, you know, we went to see the Beach Boys next to Candace Wonderland, Uh, you know, things like that. And it's like if you want the least technical uh, commentary, it's that. And then you have Gary's, which is like so technical. Well, uh, Sandy King, we should mention, if you don't know, is not only a producer of many of his movies, but his 
wife in real life. I actually, um, so last week I forgot to talk about the time I met Kevin Bacon. Uh, I actually met John Carpenter once. It's one of my favorite stories. He's amazing. So we went to a bar. He was in Montreal at the Fantasia Film Festival. And so we go to this bar across the street and we're talking about John Carpenter and how much we love his movies, like The Thing, The Fog, my personal favorite, Halloween, etc. And so we're sitting there talking about John Carpenter, and we look over, and a man is sitting next to us. <laughs> like 30 <laughs> minutes into the conversation, the whole entire time we're talking about him, and he's sitting next to us listening to our conversation. And so my friend Chris recognizes him. He's like, oh, my God. He's like, it's John Carpenter. Anyways, he sat down with us till about 4 in the morning. We actually got kicked out of the bar. He's such a super nice guy. He 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 basically, you know, he he spoke about this movie, the thing. He talked about his problems with the Hollywood studio system, why he walked away from filmmaking, why it was so frustrating, and there was always limitations with the budget, and he was always arguing with the producers who would interfere with his creative vision, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But he's such a nice dude. Like sometimes you meet filmmakers and are they're, they're somewhat cocky and or they don't want to talk to you because you're a fan and you might annoy them, not him. He's amazing. I have never had an experience like that. <laughs> I saw him live once. No, I mean, <laughs> Carpenter talking about. I mean, I, the the great thing about Carpenter is when you do listen to his commentaries, he he very rarely has any answers. The kind of answers that fans want. Like he's not going to tell you anything about the thing. You probably know more about the thing, the plot of the thing, than he does. Uh, he's just not that interested in it. And also, while they were shooting it, they didn't know a lot of these things they didn't know the answers to a lot of questions that fans have uh so i could totally buy that he doesn't remember necessarily how they did certain shots or or what was going on uh i don't think that he gets bogged down too much in in lore or things like that uh he seemed but he seems to me like he's a i don't know the commentaries i've listened to when him and kurt russell sit down and have a beer and, and watch big trouble in little china together that seems to me like the john carpenter that you're describing rick <laughs> And it's it's part of what makes his films. His films have a different look. You can always tell a John Carpenter movie. He is his own guy out there. He's a, he's a lone filmmaker uh, doing his thing. I, I hate to use the word auteur, but he kind of is one of those. Uh, you can you can spot a John Carpenter movie, and you can also identify his music usually <laughs> within a few notes, right? Yeah. Uh, did you guys have anything to say about the score for In the Mouth of Madness? I actually think it's one of his better ones because sometimes I find his scores to be a little bit off-putting, but I like this one. I kind of wish the main theme was a bit more in line with the score. Uh, that's about it. I, I think it's a good main theme. I just think it could have been a bit more, I don't know, Prince of Darknessy, I guess. But I guess the thing in Prince of Darkness already kind of covered that. So Sure. Yeah. At the end of the show, we're going to talk about what we would change, and I wouldn't change a score. A lot of people complain about the score, but I think like it's really just the first song, which yeah. sounds like Metallica. And the story yep. behind it is that the editor was editing the movie, and he needed music to put on the scene just as a placeholder. So he put a Metallica song, I'm guessing like Enter Sandman or something, and John Carpenter liked it, so he decided to compose uh, the track with – is his name Jim Lang or Jim Yen? Lang. Lang. Jim, yeah. Jim, Jim Lang, Lang yeah. right. So him and Jim Lang composed this track. But I think the rest of the movie, like the music does fit. And and the funny thing is, from what I'm told, when John Carpenter performs live, people go crazy when it comes to the soundtrack for In the Mouth of Madness. Because oh, it just I, it works for uh, an actual concert. 
yeah, when I, I saw the he was here two years ago, I think, uh, and I saw him do it, and he did it in the Mouth of Madness, and I, and yes, I lost it. I was like, this is this is too good. Plus, you're getting all the images from the movie as it's happening, and you're like, oh my god, it's a rock and riff, all right? Like it's good, but it's fun. <laughs> it's 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 a product of its time. It's it was like 1994. You know what? Totally. <laughs> And so metal so, was associated with kind of demonic imagery and things yeah. like that. I think it was just it had those kind of, you know, that that sort of flavor to it. Uh, I think it works fine for the beginning of the movie. It, it it would you're right that it doesn't fit with the rest of the score at all. <laughs> but but for some reason, I'm OK with it because I always expect little idiosyncrasies in John Carpenter movies anyway. And that's kind of what makes so many of them so interesting. And to me, that's just another, that's just a typical John Carpenter decision. It's just some, something that seems completely out of place, yet in the end kind of works for me. Yeah. I'm okay with it. Like I say, this is one of my favorite scores of his. John Carpenter's run from 1978 to 1995 is by far easily the most impressive of any American genre filmmaker and I would say any genre filmmaker aside from maybe Mario Bava. Like, you think mm -hmm. of the movies he made during that run. Dark Star, Assault on Precinct 13, They Live, The Fog, Christine, The Thing, In the Mouth of Madness. I mean, Prince of Darkness Star is not Man, as good. Big like, Trouble, Little China. I for mean... sure. Yeah. Like, of the Apocalypse trilogy, it's not the best, but I think it's the second best. I do think it's the last great movie he made. Yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with you. I think it might be the last. Uh, oh, that's tough to say. Because uh, <laughs> there, there, there are certain things that I like about, you know, vampires, for instance, for some reason. Uh, even though that's also got a movie that's loaded with, with problems, typical John Carpenter problems. But yeah, he had a great run and uh, an unbelievable run, really. Like, which there's, there's, it isn't a fluke that he's that he, he has got such a cult following and it should be even more than a cult following really, because these are, these are movies that a lot of people grew up with on television as well. And, and, you know, they, they found homes. They were not necessarily big box office successes, but they found homes on video and, and TV. And, and uh, hopefully the guy continues to get uh, more and more credit because he deserves it. One of the, one of the best American filmmakers of our generation, for sure. Um, with that said, we're going to cut to another clip of In the Mouth of Madness, and when we are back, we will discuss some of our favorite and favorite things about the movie and possibly some things we might change. All right, here's a clip from In the Mouth of Madness. You know, most of my salesmen couldn't sniff out a phony claim if their noses were nailed to it, but you, man, you never miss. What's the miss? You learn to expect the worst in people and you get it. Everyone's looking to play an angle. I'm always there to clean up the mess. i tell you what. Stop freelancing. Join my staff. I'll make it worth your while, Trent. Forget it, Robbie. I'm an on man. Nobody pulls my strings. I'm independent. I'm happy. Well, be my man one more time. I'm having quite a difficult mess with our game. Publishing house? Yeah, it's my biggest account. They just filed a claim. It cost me millions. I want you on this right away. What's the claim? Sutter Kane's missing. Who? Huh? Sutter Kane. Do you read Sutter Kane? 
All right, that was another clip from In the Mouth of Madness. All right, guys, it is time for uh, for us to answer some questions about this movie. So, first one up, Chris, what is your favorite scene in this movie? My favorite scene is easily, bar none, the first time they go to the black church uh, when they uh, see all the kids running and the, the chasing the dog. They have uh, the the cars pulling up to the church um and they're like oh we should probably get out of here there's guns um and and they they and they wander out and you're just watching uh i forget i who's the actor does anyone know who the actor is that uh i know who that he guy? is but i always yeah. forget his name the german guy i yeah. feel like you he's the guy that played the 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 Vigo in Ghostbusters 2, isn't he? Yeah, yes, he is. yes, yeah. yes. Um, but anyways, so he comes out with his gun and he just shoots up in the air. And then, you know, it's this very, very over-the-top performance uh, that just basically, if you weren't already aware that things were weird in this town, <laughs> that, that right there goes, yo, there's something really weird going on in this town. Um, and then you have, like, the kid in the church as the doors are slamming. And then it turns into Sutter Kane, and you're like, oh, okay. Uh, it is, and then the dogs attack and everything, and it's just, oh, it is. Uh, I, I think that is where you basically go, yeah, this movie now is just going to continue propelling itself forward, and we're going to keep moving at a breakneck pace now. Um, and, yeah, I, it, it's easily my favorite scene, mainly because uh, that church is so picturesque. Um, and I realized that I don't live that far from it, so I'm going to go visit someday because it looks so nice. Um, but yeah, that is, uh, that is my favorite scene easily. Yeah, that's a good one. That's definitely when the, it, things change. The whole, the whole tone of the, and the pacing of the movie kind of changes at, at that point. It, it stops becoming an investigation movie and it starts at sort of a downhill slide, uh, from there. Uh, Rick, what is your favorite scene? Oh, I didn't want to go next because, like, I don't know what you're oh, going to choose, oh, and I have two to choose from. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm going to do kind of a combination thing because, honestly, my favorite scenes are the bookends of the movie. I love the beginning, and I love the end. And that, to me, I, I like the, the the setting, and I I kind of always like that. And I could say the same thing about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, to tell you the truth. I love the beginning, and I love the end. I, I mean, the rest of the movie is great, too. But those are the the scenes that stick out the most for me. Those are the ones that I could just watch, you know, a YouTube clip of any time and just turn on that scene and just sort of revel in the filmmaking. That that opening insane asylum uh, scene to me is just absolutely crackerjack filmmaking right there by Carpenter. I think that's one of his best openings to it to a film of his. Um, and the end, of course, is just super powerful. I mean, as soon as Sam Neill, Sam Neill walks in with that bucket of popcorn, <laughs> it's such a great moment. And he looks so happy. <laughs> yeah. just, also, also it, the scene when he walks out of the insane asylum, like it's a know. wide angled lens and you get sort of like a view of the entire scenery and it's all empty. And even the city streets, like when it's all empty, there's something really creepy about it. Yeah, and the, the the characters like he does some good jump scares there. One of his most effective jump scares is in the end there when the the shadowy figure passes in front of the camera as Sam Neill is walking. He's at the end of the hallway walking out of the asylum, uh, and he just kind of turns around, but nothing ever comes of it. Um, I love that. It, it, all that stuff in the asylum is fantastic, and the the deep scratches on his door and the, the blood stains everywhere, and just kind of the chaos that uh, that's that the world has turned into that he's warned everybody about. Um, yeah, I, I, I like that. So those to me are 
the two scenes that even though I, there's lots of stuff in the middle of the movie that I could easily point to as being very, very impactful for me, those those two taken together are um, are the best. OK, that was my pick. So I got a backup. So I'm actually going to choose what I think is the most iconic and thematically resonant image of the entire film, which which was actually rewritten due to budget limitations. So I mentioned this earlier in the podcast and I said I would talk about it later. And here we are. Um, I'm, of course, referring to the, I guess, climax in which in which Kane finishes his book. He informs Trent that he is a character in a novel and then as Kane approaches the doorway to the realm, he rips himself in half and he tears himself kind of like tearing a page from a book and opens up this massive black hole. And in the original script, the entire town is actually swallowed up into Kane's book. But since New Line Cinema cut their budget from 15 million to 8 million, the effects artist over at uh, ILM had to sort of get creative and brainstorm a different ending. And I think the ending that we get in the movie is far better than what was in the original screenplay. Um, so I would just have to mention that because you took my pick. But can I have a second pick? Yeah. By the way, I just want to say, I think that, that effect of him tearing himself is fantastic. It's it so still good. looks good. What's your second pick? Okay, so my second pick... I think you know it's it's one of um, it's one of the most iconic shots in a movie. It's when it's the second second or third scene in the film. Second scene in the film. It's when they're sitting in the diner, mm-hmm. and you see the camera is basically static. You see the outside of the diner, the city streets, across the street is the movie theater. This man walks out of the movie theater. He's holding an axe. He's clearly crazy and psychotic, and he's. People are like screaming and running away and they don't even realize what's happening in the outside. They're, they just go on with the conversation and he just basically takes the axe and he smashes through the window. Um, that scene, I th- and later, of course, we, we realize that it's Sutter Kane's agent, right? Who's the man with the axe. The reason why I love that scene, not only because of the way it's framed, like the static shot, like there is cuts, like he does cut from like a close-up of Sam Neill to a close-up of the man he's talking to, et cetera, et cetera. But for the most part, it is a static shot. But the reason why I love it is because the thing about John Carpenter, and I know this, and many people know this, like I've actually met the guy, he's he's sort of bitter towards the Hollywood industry. And I think that that introduces one of the film's major themes because he takes a sort of like sly, satirical jab at the sort of people who, you know, who believe that movies or books or music can actually cause people to do evil things. Like here you have a guy who watches a movie about an axe killer, then walks out at a movie and becomes an axe killer. You know what I mean? So like that's the thing about the movie. And also what I I only noticed this for the first time this week watching a movie for like the sixth or seventh time. The end of the movie, he basically walks into the movie theater, and it's it's sort of like the reverse of this man walking out of the movie theater. You know what I mean? So, like, he's going into the movie theater, he watches the movie, and he becomes insane. And in this scene, it's another man who, walk, who walks into the movie theater, walks out of the movie theater, and becomes insane. And so, yeah, so I just love that sequence. Was that – I thought that was a bookstore for some reason. That, that the axe that the agent walked out of 
I was it a movie a, theater? I think it's a video store. It's a video, a video store. store. Okay. Video yeah. Store. yeah. And he does turn like he actually Sam Neill's character Trent does axe people sort of as a callback when when that kid walks out, uh, you know, <laughs> and, and with the new book, and he axes that kid because the blue eyes thing. Um, th- that's at least a little bit of a callback. I like that that opening scene too. Is or, sorry, not opening scene, but the diner scene is fantastic. And I love the way you're just watching this guy walk across the street. And so there's a part of you that wants to watch the two main characters. It's a very nervous scene because they're talking about something and you think, Oh, that's my main character. I have to listen to what he's talking to. But in the background, I'm seeing this guy walk towards them. So I'm looking down, I'm looking up, I'm looking down, I'm looking up, watching both of them trying to be like, "Uh Oh, guys, guys, guys. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great way of doing that, that he doesn't he doesn't call too much attention to it. He just sort of lets the, the viewer figure that out. And I think there's a lot of shots in this movie where, Carpenter doesn't call attention to his horror. He just sort of lets you find it. Yeah, I really think that what Videodrome did for the television set, I think In the Mouth of Madness does for 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 fiction. Like if you think about it, there like in Videodrome itself, David Cronenberg's film, I think was ahead of its time, and I think this film is also. Like mm-hmm. the idea of of um the danger of media overexposure to affect within it. Can it actually influence people who are obsessed with their, whatever their, their novelists or their actors or film directors. And, and like, I, I, I just like, I feel like I know I've heard a lot of people say bad things about this movie, but again, it's 90 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) He does so much in 90 minutes. Yeah. It may not be my favorite movie of his. And I think there's some, you know, like I say, we'll get to that in, in just a little bit on what we would change. But um, I, it's hard for me to to look at this and ha- or ha- see anybody looking at this and think that it was bad. This is a very, very, very watchable movie. The length, for one thing. But again, you're just looking at at some gorgeous, gorgeous imagery, imagery and some well constructed scenes. Now, with that in mind, all right, Chris, who's your MVP of this movie? I mean, it's Sam Neill. Mainly for my reason why I love this movie so much, it's it's watching a guy go like insane, and Sam Neill gives like I, I you know I don't think he quite hits possession level good, but I think uh, this is uh, easily one of his greatest performances, um, and just looks like so much fun. Uh, you know, e- easily I could have had Carpenter as it, but. Uh, yeah, in my opinion, it's Sam Neill. He, he just gives like a tour de force. And not the the performance that people were expecting from him, I think, after Jurassic Park. There was yeah. this idea of Sam Neill as the quiet, steady, you know, very reasonable guy, the grounded, down-to-earth guy that people had seen him in his Jurassic Park. And he's an Australian actor, so people weren't so familiar with him. Uh, and then all of a sudden this comes along. <laughs> it's kind of it's a little weird. Well, yeah, you, you compare this to like people coming into this movie from Jurassic Park. You go, OK, that's pretty different. But then you look at like his horror films that he had done prior, like I said, Possession and uh, The Omen 3. Was he in that one? Uh, he was in one of the Omen movies. Uh, and I remember he's just so devilish in it. Uh, and yeah, it is. Sam Neill is like an amazing horror actor who is not in enough horror movies, in my opinion. Um, but yeah. I'm actually surprised the movie didn't make a lot of money. And, like, it's weird because it was supposed to be released in September of 1994. They decided to release it in February of 1995. It, it got released in Italy for some reason because they basically had no faith in the movie. Like, they didn't think it would make 
money. But it, it, it starred Sam Neill, who was in Jurassic Park, like one of the biggest movies of the 90s. So I just don't understand the thought process behind the producers. It's why John Carpenter's had a problem with him for, <laughs> with producers forever. I yeah. mean, totally. his movies have always gotten the short end of the stick when it comes to the the box office receipts for the most part. I mean, outside of a few exceptions, they, they've really had problems and they, they, they find a life of their own afterwards when people realize how great so many of them are. Uh, but he also just gets un- unfortunate, you know, timing and all sorts of things. Just sort of bad luck has also been a part of John Carpenter's release career. Uh, Rick, who is your MVP? Or do you want me to go first? Hayden Christensen. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it is hands down his best performance. Come on. He's fantastic in this movie. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say Sam Neill. And, and the reason why is because, uh, and I'm going to talk about this soon, but when you look at the rest of the cast, right? Like nobody really does a good job, and, and and that's why I don't really want to give it to John Carpenter because yeah, there's a lot of memorable images and scenes, and we talked about this throughout the podcast. But the thing is, like, you you have to give credit to the cinematographer for like the way the movie looks, like a good a good portion of it, like and not just the lighting, but even the camera shots and the and the framing because he he was really hands on and and made a lot of decisions. And then when you look at the direction of the actors, especially the supporting cast and the the extras, I'm like, okay, so like. If Sam Neill wasn't as good as he is in his movie, like you replace him with, uh, I don't know, name an actor, right? This movie could have completely fallen apart. And it's one of those movies that follows uh, an unreliable narrator. You know, it's this, uh, is it real? Is it not real? Like, is it a dream? Is it not a dream kind of like movie? And it's kind of confusing, but I think he carries the entire movie on his shoulders. And you really have to like this character or at least be, invested and care about his story you don't necessarily have to care about him because he's not necessarily the most likable protagonist but you do and he he's fantastic so i have to give it to sam neil see i would i had a theory about the acting this movie at first that was my my thought was yours like nobody's turning in a good performance (laughs) and then after a while when i started thinking like okay these are all characters in a book so these actors are playing characters in a pulp horror book and I thought maybe there's a certain style to the acting here that actually lends itself pretty well to that theory. And maybe everybody is doing a really good job because they are just playing kind of cookie cutter characters for the most part. <laughs> a, certain and, sti- a certain style, you mean Canadian actors? <laughs> <laughs> no, I kind of like their no, line. Canadian actors are terrible. Like, <laughs> no. anyways, we'll, we'll talk about that later. I, what, what, what it was your, who is your MVP? Well, I'm giving it to the cinematographer. I'm I, that that to me is this movie for me is mostly about the look rather than anything else. It's not so much about the story, or and and Sam Neill is is very fun to watch. There's no question. But what sticks with me through this movie is simply the imagery. Um, for the I mean that's that's what's always going to stick with me in this movie because I think it has some of the best imagery in John Carpenter's career. But I do believe it is mostly not so much from the direction as the compositions. I think the composition that's what I'm giving it to the cinematographer and I, Gary Kibbe, I believe. Um, and so yeah, I think it, the direction is fine, but it is the compositions that really really nail it home. I think uh, and the lighting. The lighting too, I, I, and that's that's got to be all on him. 
I mean, I, I'm obviously Carpenter would would have been involved in those discussions, but I'm going to give uh, give you the credit on this one. But, but we talked about this last week. You never know who to give credit to because it should be the, the director who decides the framing and the compositions and how the camera moves, et cetera, et cetera. But when I was listening to the commentary, the DVD commentary, it seems like John Carpenter has no clue how they shot the film. So based on the commentary that I listened to, I agree with you. I think he had more say on how the film looks than John Carpenter did. And the the lighting is is almost solely the you know the the responsibility of the cinematographer. And I think the lighting in this movie is fantastic and contributes so much to the way that these why these images stick out and stand out. I mean that opening shot of the asylum that's just brilliant. It's it's such a yeah. Great shot, and you and the choice to use the lens. I'm not sure if that was John Carpenter's choice. I know he likes to shoot in widescreen. He's usually an anamorph, anamorphic widescreen guy, 2.35 to one. But um, the lens that they used was fantastic. According to the DVD commentary, it was the cinematographer who chose the lens, a 22 millimeter lens, and he had no idea what kind of lens they chose. So yeah, so there you go. I, that's that's my MVP because I think this is a gorgeous looking movie. It looks gorgeous now. Like yep. I, I could, I, you could stack this up against anybody who's shooting horror movies, and it's got more creative imagery than uh, than I, I, any any uh, than most the vast majority of horror movies, which are all trying for creative imagery. All right. So that being said, this is where we're going to get to the interesting part. I already know. I mean, I knew immediately what I was going to say for this one. But if there is one thing that you could change about this movie, Chris, what would it be? I the only thing I can think of is, as I already mentioned, uh, I, I just think that that main theme could have been more in line with the score, because honestly, I, I really like this movie and I actually don't have the problems with the supporting cast, because uh, like you, Patrick, uh, I was reading into it the same way. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, for me, it's that score, I think, or the the main theme. It's about it. Like, I, I think. Yeah, it just opening with that gives a very different vibe than what the movies, like the rest of the score is and what it's doing. Um, it's very much like a that could have been the end credits, which it is, but uh, having it be the main theme at the beginning seemed weird. Uh, now, for me, it, it would be the... <laughs> this is not one little thing. Uh, I wouldn't change one scene in this movie. I think the screenplay needed to be punched up. I think somebody needed to take another pass at it. I think that there's dialogue that could have been a little bit smarter. Uh, they didn't really nail the noir thing that they were going for, in my opinion. They didn't have that kind of double indemnity, the wit that those those screenplays had. Uh, this this movie could have used a little more than that. Again, I think it's structured really well, and I like the overall way that, that DeLuca handled it um, and that he created characters. But I really think there could have been just a little – it could have been a little snappier – uh, in in many scenes, where like and Rick, you brought up that 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 opening sort of interrogation that Sam Neill conducts uh, on a, on a client that's clearly trying to commit insurance fraud. That scene to me was a good example of something that could have used a little more punch to give me just a little bit more um, care of Sam Neill's character, but also setting the scene for you know the verbal repartee that he could have with that guy and, and how he could maybe be sussing things out in the future. I wanted to see more of his hound dog mentality. Um, it just seemed to come a little too easy to him that, Oh, I just happened to find your, your wife. And I, she just happened to supply me or with information because I just happened to have photos of you cheating and, or, or whatever it's implied that he was. 
Um, I just thought that that was a little too, it all came a little too easy. I wanted to see more of the grit from Sam Neill, more of the detective, right? Instead of the guy that just happened, happened to sort of run across some information. <laughs> so for me, yeah, it's the screenplay. I, I would, I would definitely want somebody to take another pass at it. All right, Rick, what would you change? Nobody had any comment about that. Everybody loves the screenplay for this movie. Uh, I, I, I do love the screenplay, but if you're referring to the dialogue, then I would never be opposed to someone spicing up the dialogue for sure. Yeah. I don't know if I'm cheating here, but I would change the entire supporting cast except for Hayden Christensen. <laughs> I swear to God, Hayden Christensen is amazing in this movie. That's Even the best of his career. Yo, what this about, um, Francis Bay erasure, it so needs to stop. Thing. She's so good. Hey, well, yeah, my, and what about Charles yeah, Peston? My turn here to, ch- to change what I can change if I can snap my fingers. Uh, first of all, Julie Carmen's performance, I think, does not work, especially when she starts to lose it. Like, the whole sequence where she returns to the bedroom and she's rolling around on the bed. I, I just didn't I, – I just could not it, – it's like – it's it's one of those like that is the one scene in the movie where I actually do laugh while watching movie, which is not a good thing because that's not the kind of movie that you want it to be. I mean, Jurgen's okay. David Warner is David Warner. He's fine. Like, but like, it's more like I guess what I'm trying to say. I shouldn't I shouldn't have said the supporting cast. I should say the extras. Like mm. all of the extras in this movie, the people lined up in front of the bookstore. The the old lady in the bus who's clearly laughing when Sam Neill loses his shit. Like, she's laughing. <laughs> they had to cut away because the old lady's <laughs> laughing. All of the extras who live in Toronto, <laughs> like the Canadian actors. By the way, if anyone listening to the podcast, I'm Canadian. Chris lives in Toronto. So um, they all need to go just to replace every single one of those extras. And I think I, think, uh, I would be happy. But, like, yeah, like – Specifically, that the old lady in the bus, like she's laughing. <laughs> it's so weird. Um, and I'm not joking. Hayden Christensen's really good in this movie. I know it's a brief scene, but like I like I like his character because that boy who's in this constant loop of riding up and down the highway, and then he turns into this old man. He's like, I can't get out. I can't get out. And later, you finally see him like the normal boy. Um, I, I just really, really do like that character. It's a minor character, but it's it's still, I think, an important character in the film. Oh, yeah, they keep referencing him. There, there's definitely something going on. Like, they like that character, and that character means something. There's a transition. It's it's from going from normal to uh, the, the whatever, the parallel dimension or the whatever, the, the, the weirdness, and then back to supposedly normal again. Uh, that He's kind of the gatekeeper sort of sort of thing. Yeah, I agree about the extras for sure. I, it's the it, it is the supporting cast though where I go like you know uh, I do agree about Julie Carmen. I think that she was a bit weak uh, in it, especially that scene in particular that you bring up. But I mean, uh, I don't know. I you give me John Glover and you give me you know uh, like I said Francis Bay, who I think is amazing in this, and uh, the guy who plays the father that uh, eventually kills himself. Uh, like he's so good in that bar. Like that bar scene uh, is so good. And yeah, like I, I think a lot of the supporting cast is intentionally like cheesy. And I, Francis and I, Bay. Francis Bay is fantastic in the film. Yeah, Bernie she's Casey so good. Is at the start. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's yeah. The, I, I misworded it. It's the extras. Yeah. yeah. The, the extras, extras and great. Julie Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. I, I thought she was weak at first, and then I started to realize. I, I thought maybe there was a method to her madness. Um, 
because I think she is playing a character that was going to get written out of a book because it wasn't a good enough character. You see what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and I think I think she does a good job of that. It was just it was it was kind of weird at first. I was like, wow, this lady's terrible at this movie. I don't remember her being this bad. And then the longer it went on, I thought, no, this is actually it kind of works for what she her function is in this movie, because we're not really supposed to ever get to know her or feel for her in any way. She's just this, you know, person that's around Trent. That's all. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well. I guess for anybody who's casting movies in Canada, good luck uh, with your extras. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the final question, of course, uh, Rick, you kind of answered it on your part, but we're going to get a more in-depth answer from you, is uh, do you think that In the Mouth of Man stands, has stood the test of time from a 90s, early 90s horror all the way through today? Oh, for sure. I think it's a stylish, fun, clever horror film. I think it's uh, thematically complex and confusing for a lot of viewers. And I think, um, I mean, we talked about the special effects age as well. Sam Neill's great, the direction, the cinematography. But it's, it's just a really fun movie to watch. And so I do think it stands the test of time. And like I said earlier, I do think in terms of like how it views society's obsession with pop culture and celebrity and fandom, et cetera, et cetera. I, I think that it, it's not ahead of its time because that was still going on at the time, but it's more relevant today, I think. So 100%, yes, I do not understand why it only has a 59% Rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Not that I put too much stock into Rotten Tomatoes, but it's just bizarre. And I don't understand how it didn't make a profit when it was released theatrically. It only made a small profit on home video. It's so bizarre because it's John Carpenter, it's Sam Neill... It's it's part of this trilogy, and it, it was just for some reason a complete like bomb. Yeah, and the weirdness may have something to do with that. Uh, I actually think it does stand the test of time fairly well, as far as just uh, like I say, the imagery is. I think that imagery will always stand the test of time. And then how much you get out of it might be how much you depend on how much you bring to it. If you are a Lovecraftian fan, I think you're going to get a lot more out of this than, than someone else who may be con- end up confused. However, that confusion can turn into really great discussion, too. And it's one of those kind of horror movies, this sort of what the hell is going on here kind of horror movie. And uh, I think that can lead to a lot of fun talk afterwards. There are a lot of, you know, you could watch a lot of horror movies and there's just really nothing to say afterwards other than you liked it or you didn't like it. I think this one's going to, force your brain into uh, figuring out the puzzle a lot more than most will. So I think in that sense, this is going to be a very watchable movie for a long time. And like you said, it's only 90 minutes. That's It zips by pretty quickly. Uh, it kind of knows what it wants to do. It feels very competent, even if it can be confusing to people at times. It still feels like it knows what's, what it wants to do. Um, and so for that sense, or for that reason, I think it's it's going to be around. What about, what about you, Chris? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I like I've seen it probably seven or eight times. So like, yeah, I would say it stands the test of time, but like, uh, and that it will, but like, uh, even further. But I will say, like, it is a confusing movie, uh, you know, to just like launch yourself into, especially if you don't, I don't know, I guess if you don't really know Lovecraft at all, I think you, you might have to do a little bit of work uh, while watching it. But I don't know, I. It's just a matter of, uh, I think Prince of Darkness has the same thing where it's like it is it is building up to a thing and it is throwing a lot of a lot of terms at you. It's throwing a lot of ideas at you. Um, and it it 
of it's whether the payoff works for you, whether or not it, you'll actually revisit it. Um, and in this case, like I think both of those movies pay off really well, um, and that is why you revisit it. But yeah, I I also think it's it's a bit confusing. So I I do get the disdain when it came out. Um, but yeah, I like I enjoy it still. So yeah, I would say it stands to stand. I mean, the turtleneck confuses the hell out of me. <laughs> Dude, all writers wear turtlenecks. That's just a fact. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wonder if Stephen King ever wore a turtleneck if, if they if they ripped that off from him. All right, well, guys, that should wrap it up. Um, Rick, where can we find you online? You can find me writing over at Goombastomp.com, and I, uh, I'm i on Twitter, but I handle the official Twitter account for Goombastomp, which is Goombastomp, and like us on Facebook. You can listen to the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, YouTube, of course, on the website, SortedCinema.com, and or Goombastomp.com, and Stitcher, I believe. Pretty much everywhere, I think. Um, <laughs> Chris, where can we find you online? Uh, I write on Goombastomp dot com as well uh and for twitter i am at hammercop cross that's hammercop with a k um i also do a podcast film follow podcast which is on like everything ricky just said probably like look it up you'll find it uh and that's basically it it's film fallout film fallout Yes, we definitely want to get the name. Uh, and of course, <laughs> you can find me, obviously, at Goombastomp.com, on Twitter at Sword Cinema. Definitely check out uh, our film section over at Goombastomp. Got a lot of good articles coming out. Uh, Rick's article on In the Mouth of Madness. And of course, uh, you can check out past podcasts, like us, share this podcast, make comments, do anything we can. Let us know if we're doing a good job here. Uh, we've sort of had a new format for Sword Cinema. We're we're having fun with it, and hopefully everybody else is having fun listening to it. Chris, you live in Toronto. Which movie theater is that? Is it the Blur Cinema? Uh, the one in the movie. Uh, it's actually the Eglinton Theater. Um, I believe it is shut down now. Oh. Yes. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Because of the unspeakable <laughs> horror. Yeah. Did you see the movie? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> How could it not be, right? <laughs> All right. That should do it. We'll be back next week with His Girl Friday. We'll see you then. You're still here. Busy night. Special effects. Hidden speakers, you people are professionals, I'll give you that. The thing I can't remember is what came first. Us or the book. We are not living in a Sutter Kane story. This is not reality. <laughs> reality is not what it used to be. Oh, Jesus, this place makes my head hurt. Oh, really? Come on. Look at this. This was done by a five-year-old. My five-year-old. Johnny's sister. She did me after. She did her mom. You're alone. <laughs> <laughs>